Hey, Andy Phillips here. And I'm Tom Hackett. You may remember us from that time when we used to try really hard to make plays on fourth down. Well, we're back at it with a brand new show called Special Forces Gang, where we give you new perspective on what it takes to be a football player. We talk all things Utah football, sports, and life. Don't miss Special Forces Gang. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or on kslsports.com. Go Utes! I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership. I'm Jess Larson. This is part two of our interview with Chris Jones. I think you said it well. And I think a lot of people that will make comments and share uh, excerpts from my blog tend to say this is the hardest thing I've ever read, but simultaneously the most inspirational. Because what they're doing is they're recognizing that, yes, something really hurts, but also I can do something with this. And what meaning does this have in my own life? And I think everybody's hungry for meaning and purpose. Our second take since I just started the interview without pushing record. So, Chris, let's recap <laughs> the first half of this interview. Um, but let's actually just jump to that last question. So, this idea of um, how we have a natural temptation in in leadership positions to monologue instead of to have group activity, yeah. and um, we were, you were talking about this this idea of how. Uh, well, I was asking you, why do you think it is that as leaders? we naturally lean towards monologuing instead of thinking of opportunities for everyone to contribute. Great. And I think that a, a lot of times we just, we forget. We forget that everyone else has great ideas. We, we forget that people come to the table with life experiences that are completely germane to the thing we're talking about. And so if you can engage learners at that level, where they come to the table with their life experience insights and uh, anecdotal kind of stories that it just creates a richer learning environment. And so one of our axioms in terms of building curriculum, one of our philo- governing philosophies is that dialogue is always better than monologue. So uh, let's, let's run a little exercise. I was telling you before um, CEO Klein, I was on the phone with this morning, we were talking about involving everybody in the organization in creating their own standard operating procedures for their, for their job, for their role. They create their own recipe of here's how to do my job. Um, and as you know, so now there's now there's a standard that we can have continuous improvement based off of. We can create efficiencies from. In a position like that, knowing that that's a program this this CEO is interested in implementing at their creative agency, what kind of what kind of advice would you have of how to make that more of a dialogue than a monologue? Well, let's suppose there are three or four people in a department that have kind of shared tasks, but they're coming up with their SOPs. They might gain from saying, hey, guys, this is what I'm going to do. And somebody else might say, well, this is what I'll do. And so they sort of have this cross-pollinization of ideas and insights to help refine all of their SOPs, particularly if they're fairly related. Does that make sense? So encourage them not just to develop their own thing in a silo, but get peer review and get some insights. I think you'll learn a lot from that. Yeah. it's funny how sometimes when I do stuff like that, I don't necessarily want peer review. I just want everyone to tell me how smart I am. <laughs> Any thoughts for helping somebody like me come to it with more humility and be being more interested in the result than my own ego? Wow. Okay. So I'm a book geek. Another book I want to write is called Executive Hubris, and it's about how institutional and individual humility can save both the individual and the, gr- and the group. And, you know, I think that's just a matter of mindfulness and practice, just 
I think it's okay to not have all the answers and to, to learn from others. And I, you know, sometimes I think we worry too much that if somebody else gave me an idea or gives me a course correction, that somehow I'm deficient as a professional. And in reality, I think we're better off if we can all just drink from each other's cups and learn from each other. So how do I remind myself of that? How do I get the, the focus off myself and instead care about my team more than my ego, care about our result more than how good I look or having people think I'm smart? Um, I think the first thing to do is to tell the whole team that that's what I struggle with and then say, will you help me when you sense this? I love that one. Uh, it's funny how much guts it takes to out ourselves, doesn't it? Yeah, but you gain so much more trust when you do that. When people realize, because everyone knows when they see a pretender, and we all pretend on some level. So if we can just put, put the pretending aside and just be real for a minute, oh, man, that's when magic happens. Trust and engagement go up on levels you know never seen before when yeah. we can be that. You know, um, I'm constantly asking people for, hey, tell me a real-life person that lived like that who, you know, there's a pattern the rest of us can learn from. Who's somebody in your life that, that you feel like lived, lived like that, that? Who do you want to turn out like later? I've had no examples in that category, to be honest with you. Um, and so I've made a deliberate intent to do just what I've not seen. So I can't point to anybody that's done that. I mean, I've seen them in books here and there, and I don't even remember their names. Yeah. But in reality, I've seen so much chest thumping and hairy chest in my professional career. I'm just tired of it. And that's one of the reasons why I'm incubating some of the companies I am is because we're trying to attack that same kind of hubris. You know, it's interesting. Um, one of uh, one of my business partners that uh, also helps out a lot with our charity came out of one of the classified units of special ops. Mm -hmm. And I remember um, my wife and, and he and I were at a, at a lunch together and we were talking about leadership kind of subjects. And um, my wife made some sort of comment about different commanders in the military, whatever. And, and he's like, Oh man, I've learned from every single one of them. And she was like, really? He's like, yeah. I mean, a bunch of the times it was learning what not to do. But I still consider that a benefit of like, oh, yeah, that, you know, that's what I was able to learn from him. You know, the guy, the very first episode of this podcast, Chip Heath, Chip Heath he was a Kansas City, head of Kansas City SWAT, the high-risk search warrant team for years and stuff. His dad was a career criminal. Mm. And he said, basically, like, my plan was to just do the opposite of everything my dad had done. <laughs> that was his operating yeah, procedure. That's, that's great. You know? Yeah. Um, so what about uh, this new game, Spark? You know, it's on Kickstarter today. Um, did you have collaborators with that? Was there some leadership in getting all the team to work together or was it more of a solo effort? So I have some employees that I roped into the meeting. I did it kind of in a skunk works model for a while. I was developing it privately and then I'd bring in some of my great team members and you know, they would tip over my sacred cows, things that I felt like were really special. Like what's an example? What's one of them? Oh man, where do I even start? Um, yeah. We, for example, there were some ideas on the way we would structure our cards and these story prompts. I had these, this feeling like this was the way to do it. And then they would come over and say, um, that's not going to work. And this is why. And I would just immediately let go of it. I'd be like, you know what? That's right. I think the, in my philosophy and our team is that the best idea should always win. It doesn't matter where it came from. And so, you know, a lot of times these guys would come in and help me shape this game and make it better than I could have ever made it by myself. You know, it, it's interesting, this idea of, of new employees, right? Um, in certain ways, they're the least likely to have subject expertise subject matter expertise yeah. about whatever it is our team does or our organization does. Yeah. And yet they're the most likely to have fresh ideas uh -huh. and not suffer from groupthink. Oh, totally. Um, yet, you know, how unlikely is it for most of us to show up and go, Hey, your job is 
to get up to speed and to learn this and to show us, to tell us all the things that you see that you think we don't see, mm. you know, um, that's probably something I could work on. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to be the one asking everyone to do that. And sometimes it's hard for people to step into that, you know, and, and, and be critical of something that could be improved. But yeah, I'll tell you, my game is improved uh, considerably by, by multiple, precisely because I was willing to let go. I was willing to let the other team members come up with ideas that were far better than the ones I came up with. Yeah, there, it's an interesting statement, letting go, right? You think about how, uh, especially when there's risk involved, especially when there's uncertainty, we can have such a such a tendency to to hold on to things so tight. Sure. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like that idea of uh, don't be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't accept something better. Yeah, totally. You know, it's yeah. a great saying out there. Yep. Um, and yet, you know, we get an idea in our mind, and, and we know how it's going to work, and we latch onto it, and we're, look, you know, we're looking for all the validation to prove that our idea is the idea, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thinking about. Um, the future of the business and, and, you know, let's say this Kickstarter goes off the charts, which everybody, cause everybody's listening today, goes and buys it or <laughs> gets their friends. To buy. What, what's phase two? Where do you hope to go? Well, uh, yeah, I want the game to be a commercial success because I think it'll draw people together in new and meaningful ways. The game does things that other games don't do. Uh, they, it causes people to become the entertainment, not consume external entertainment, which is really novel and unique these days. But there's a deeper meaning behind Spark, the magic of storytelling, this game we've got. And that is that the stories we tell ourselves shape our relationships, the direction and trajectory of our lives. And so there's other curriculum I have plans to build, even you know, almost a corporate application of the very game mechanics we have to unlock business problems. It's insane what happens when you get a group of creatives trying to work on a marketing message, for example, and then you play some music in the background with some prompts, and all of a sudden they're coming up with narratives to describe their product in ways they had never considered before. It's insane. So that's coming up in addition to just some other deeper reflection on what it means to tell stories and how are our stories in our lives shaping where we're going and how we're interpreting the events that we can't control. Yeah. Well, thinking about marketing, for instance, right? Kickstarter is a, you know, it's very democratic. It's it's amazing opportunity. We've had a number of folks on here who have done millions of dollars off Kickstarter and, and uh, it's been fun for me to learn from them. Um, but it's not by accident. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's intentional marketing behind those great Kickstarter success stories. Um, can you talk about your blog and, and building following and, and some of the, the work you've done over your history to get to today? Well, yeah, my blog has to do with my son's life story called Mitchell's journey. And its function was really to kind of help. It was basically, that was my, uh, my my couch, my psychology sort of dumping all my issues and putting my pieces back together again. Um, I'm ordinarily a pretty private guy, but as I started to decompress some of the difficult things in life and started to make meaning of it, it really gathered a great deal of attention from people all yeah, across the world. Can you tell us some of the numbers or some of the... Yeah, we're uh, north of 310,000 uh, readers on Facebook and, uh, and, and lots of other, you know, 10,000... 15,000, I think, on Instagram and just, you know, but, but the, the idea is that people are coming to listen to these stories, not because I'm trying to throw my broken glass on the floor, but because I'm scooping them up and trying to make a new mosaic with all the things that are, you know, would otherwise be broken. Well, uh, this is what I want to talk about is there's so many folks that they try to manufacture authenticity or they try to, um, you know, where the the sole aim is how do we get more followers? How do we get more eyeballs? How do we whatever? And it's, it's uh, interesting how, 
how unlikely that is to get, you know, deep followers who are passing the message on and telling their, their friends and their mom and their cousins that they, they got to check this out and how often like being our own mascot and, and like living our own message, regardless of the results ends up being the thing that invites results. Would you agree with that? Would you say it different? I think I totally agree with that. Yeah. And I'd be lying if I didn't wonder, you know, I, I do notice when certain posts have more shares and I care about that because that means it hit a chord and it, it's helping someone and they want to help pass that along. But yeah, it's, it's a difficult balance. And, and I just found that just take the mask off and just, I'm willing to admit all my weaknesses. I'm a deeply flawed man. That's got lots of challenges and, but, but I'm not so bad either. And so, you know, we're just all a weird mosaic of all of our life experiences. That that's a fascinating statement to me because I feel like, you know, being the boss at work or anywhere in our life, this, this, um, temptation to, uh, like whitewash, you know, like whitewash our past and, and like social media eyes our, our life and try to only, you know, only show the best parts that mm-hmm. are amazing to folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, right. There's that temptation. And then the pendulum can swing the other way. We can fall off the balance beam the other way of the, Oh, I'm so terrible. And it's like exaggerations on the, well, I'm the worst person that's ever lived. And, right. and, and it's, it's not truthful. Like in the, in the name of humility, it gets, it can go the other way of, it's almost another way of getting attention of look at how terrible oh, I am. Yeah, for sure. And no, nobody wants to see that. Like, you know, I think too oftentimes people will share their hardships and it's like they're throwing all their broken glass on the floor and they wonder why everyone's separating because they themselves don't want to step on that broken glass and cut their own feet. And in reality, if we can scoop our pieces back and try to make sense and meaning of it in, a, in an authentic, honest way, um, I think people lean in because they're saying, oh, wow, look how you're putting those together. I think I can do something like that for me. Well, um, can you talk about, um, you know, the difference between having 3000 people reading this and having 300,000 people read it and how it's maybe made you more thoughtful about what you're writing or if, if it had any impact, the difference between when there's 3000 people reading it now with 300,000. I started with maybe 30 readers. And then when people started to flood in, as I started to share a little bit about my son's situation in the hospital, um, I frankly felt a little violated. I was like, wait, dude, this is my private space. Like, why are people coming in? And then I started to let go, and I just began to just share my heart, and I didn't care, and I wasn't trying to play to an audience um, at all. And I, I don't think I do today either. I, I think I don't. I, I hope I'm as authentic as I ever was in terms of sharing stories. But, you know, I, I just think that um, it's just really important to just be candid about the situations we face and what meaning. I think that's what people want more than anything is how do I make meaning out of my own circumstance? And that's precisely why people follow or started to read my blog was they began to figure out, Oh, if I did, if I thought this way or did that, maybe I can make more meaning out of my own circumstance. Okay. What you just said makes so much sense to me because I think about the folks that, um, use sharing on a social media. Like I may be more of a private guy myself. And I look at the way some of the folks use sharing on social media that it, it's almost like a desperate plea for help, but the way it's done, it's almost like they're clawing the eyes out from the person who yeah. could potentially be swimming up to save them from drowning. Totally. Your idea of this throwing the glass on the ground. It, it's interesting as you say that, how much I think about this, um, how often those messages come across as, Oh, poor me. Yeah. Um, you guys couldn't understand how special I am for how bad this is. Oh yeah. No, rather than this like humility of like, uh, I'm going through something really tough just like a whole bunch of you probably are yeah. like this. Um, the temptation to be special 
it distances us from others, doesn't it? Totally does. Um, rather than lessons learned, being honest about the highs and lows in a, in a connected way, how could this be of benefit to others rather than look at how different I am than the rest of you? Mm-hmm. Would you say it different than that or what, what kind I, of reaction I, would you have? I think you said it well. And I think a lot of people that will make comments and share uh, excerpts from my blog tend to say this is the hardest thing I've ever read, but it's simultaneously the most inspirational because what they're doing is they're recognizing that, yes, something really hurts, but also I can do something with this. And what meaning does this have in my own life? And I think everybody's hungry for meaning and purpose. And I think we're starved of that a lot um, in media and social media in particular, because all we do is compare ourselves to other people. And when somebody finally takes the mask off and says, hey, this is the real me, and I have doubts and worries and self-questions, but I also love me, and I'm okay. There's my, my most popular article ever that I ever wrote was called, I'm okay, but I'm not okay, and that's okay. And it was the story of my son walking into my home office. I'm in a heap, just bawling. I'm writing a story about the funeral directors closing the casket on my son, and this would be the last time I'd ever see him in mortality. And my son walks in, here I am bawling, and he says, are you okay? And of course, you know, the Titan in me was like, oh yeah, I'm fine. He's got something <laughs> in my Sorry. eye. <laughs> different sons. Sorry, different sons. <laughs> Thank you. You have more than one son, yes, I'm guessing. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, let me, can I restart that? <laughs> it's great. You, so, just go. So uh, my older son walks in the room as I'm writing about my son, Mitchell, and he says, dad, are you okay? And I immediately, my first reaction was to just say, oh, I've got something in my eye. Everything's okay. And then I thought, I'm robbing my son, Ethan, of the truth. I'm just going to unmask and say, you know, son, I'm, I'm not okay, but I'm okay. You know what I mean? And my son says, he almost had this look of relief over his face. And he's like, yeah, I know what you mean. And he walked out of the room and we had this real moment where dad was able to show his oldest son that he can cry about his other son who's lost and, you know, passed away and that I can be okay and not okay. And that's okay. And so that article read it, you know, it's been shared millions of times and it's, it continues to this day. I get people commenting on it and I wrote it four and a half years ago. And so I think that's what people want more than anything is to feel like they're okay to be not okay. But two things, one, it's interesting how your uh, willingness to be honest about that situation um, then gives him permission mm-hmm. to to feel that way, right? Yeah. Um, and and I guess my my thought here, maybe as as we kind of close up part two, is is again this theme I've had of you know the pendulum or falling off the balance beam um, at work. You know this idea of you know, the American workplace, the global workplace is becoming more accepting of humans having feelings instead of being robots. Right. right? Yeah. And yet with, with many of our clients on the consulting side at Mylan, um, it can get to a place of like, but what if I need to hold them accountable? You know, don't, shouldn't I care about them as a person? How does this match with them delivering for the team? And, and what about, you know, when I do care that they've got this tough thing that's happening in their life and the team still needs results from them. Mm-hmm. Any, any advice on folks who feel like, oh, man, maybe my pendulum swung too far this way, and now I need advice of how to get back to center? You know, I think the, the, the greatest thing we can ever do for our colleagues is, one, you know, love and appreciate them as human beings, but also require things from them and expect things from them as professionals. Now, certainly there's circumstances, extenuating and otherwise, that we can be a little gentle in terms of, hey, this person needs a little time to process their grief. But greater trust and traction will happen when we can say, hey, you know, I need you to step up here. I'm missing this. Will you do this for me? And the moment we do that, 
actually people want to be held accountable. They want to know that they're needed and that they're a load bearing wall. And so, you know, it's, it's almost contrary to that whole notion of being, you know, human with people. Humans want to have structure. They want to be depended on. They want to know that they're important. And doing, holding them accountable helps them feel that. Um, it's never been destructive for me. Yeah, it is funny how it's probably not a shock. I'm thinking about a specific conversation from two weeks ago. Uh -huh. This individual that this, uh, this leader needs to help kind of bring more of their A-game to work, mm -hmm. they're, they're probably not oblivious to the fact Oh no. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. There's probably some like some rationalization going on. Uh -huh. They probably actually aren't feeling great about themselves not delivering on this, but they're kind of getting away with it. And sometimes there can almost be a bit of relief of like, if we don't have to dive into blame about the past, but we can talk about a different future yeah. of the, oh, then I'd be able to quit. <laughs> I'd be able to quit rationalizing and feel better about myself. Totally. Yeah, I, you're right. I think that's that inner story going on in our heads. And once we call it out and say, hey, I see you and I need you to step in, they'll do it. That's great. Well, listen, everybody, uh, please check out Chris's game on, on Kickstarter. And is there a website in addition to Kickstarter? Or Yeah, they can visit sparkstorytelling.com or they can just search Kickstarter. Spark the Magic of Storytelling is the name of the game. Oh, that's great. And the Facebook page you talked about, how do they find Mitchell's that? Mitchell's Journey. Okay. Yeah. Great. Hey, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Bye, everybody. Well, that's it for the episode. One other thing I wanted to tell you about, if you'll remember the guys from Convoy uh, in episodes back, Ken Free and Trent Mano, I went on one of their CEO trips to New York and I met a guy named Brent Thompson, very successful entrepreneur. He was former CEO of Jive Communications, big uh, company now, I think three or $400 million. Anyways, he, uh, he started a new company called blipbillboards.com. I'm super stoked they're a sponsor now, but I, I remember a year and some ago when I met him, I thought it was genius. Instead of having to buy six months or a year's worth of billboard um, for thousands of dollars, you can buy eight seconds at a time for like 10 or 20 cents. You pick what billboard you want it on, what time of day you want it to run. And it just puts so much power in the hands of, of marketers and CEOs who want to try something and see if it works. You can buy as many or as few as you want, change it as many times as you want. Uh, I think now our podcast is being advertised on billboards in like 18 different states because we have these guys as sponsors. We're pretty excited about it. Hope you check out blipbillboards.com. Thanks. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara. Cold cut combo. Veggie delight. Or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Subway! Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.